You are listening to the Enormo Cast. If there's one word in climbing that gets me excited to tune in, pay attention, and be inspired, it's Babsy. That's right. Nobody climbs like the Enorma Cast well known crush, Babsy Zangirl. Nobody. And Black Diamond has supported Babsy and her boyfriend, whatever his name is, through big walls, hard sport, and hair-raising trad for several years. And now Beattie is offering the Babsy edition of their legendary Solution Harness. Light enough for sport, burly enough for walls. The Solution is the do-everything-anytime harness. And the Babsy edition has the rise and fit for a woman's body. And I believe each and every harness is blessed by Babsy herself, though don't call me on that. So do you want to climb like Babsy Zangirl? Well, let's face it, we're probably all out of luck on that front. But women climbers out there can at least get a glimpse of greatness and feel good in a Babsy Edition Solution Harness from Black Diamond. And remember, Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast, and I'd like to think Babsy tunes in once in a while too. Do you like compliments? Compliments are good, right? From the outright, straight-to-your-face statements of praise to the knowing look and slight chin-jut from your favorite bro at the gym, compliments can turn your frown upside down in an instant. And hands down, of all the gear I pedal on the Normacast, the item that receives the most out-of-the-blue compliments are the splitter hats from PeterWGilroy.com. You know, the ones with the titanium plaques and badges. That's right, titanium on a hat. Peter started making these hats a few years ago and has kept the styles coming with designs inspired by the great mountain ranges of the world. So if you're one of those people with a head and who enjoys random praise from friends and strangers alike, go to PeterWGilroy.com and check out the splitter hats and all the wearable art that Peter creates. Even better, receive a discount and help out the EnormaCast by entering Enormo at checkout. That's PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold also, it out. Like I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is July 1st, 2021, about 10 o'clock here in Colorado. 
and this is episode 223 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with John Long. You guys know who John Long is, right? Do I have to explain John Long to you? Maybe so. Stone Master, kind of invented the Stone Masters, was a seminal Stone Master anyway, did the first one-day ascent of the nose with Billy Westbay and Jim Bridwell, and the first free ascent of Astroman with Kauk and Backer, was an early free soloist, kind of established 512 in California with the Pisano overhang, also might have done the first 13B with the hangover in Takits. Author of many, many books, including lots of instructional books, How to Rock Climb, the original anchor book that everybody had, I think, and has been revised on several occasions. Uh, that was John Long. You probably have some John Long books on your shelf if you're a book person. Anyway, John Long, been around a long time, written a lot of books, done a lot of adventuring, and a lot of climbing. Yeah, John's got a new book out, Icarus Syndrome, and he's making the rounds. Made it onto the EnormaCast. And I do have a little business. I do want to remind you that I will be at the Climbers Fest, the International Climbers Fest in Lander. It starts on the 15th. I'll probably show up on the 16th. I don't know, the Friday. I have a table at the uh, trade fair. So if you're there, come say hello. I'm not actually selling anything. I don't really have anything left to sell. The merch thing, maintaining an internet store and packaging stuff up and selling it, I just wasn't into it. I got a few things left. Maybe I'll bring them up there and we'll have a fire sale. I'll get you a koozie anyway. I think I have some koozies left. Maybe I'll order some new koozies. But either way, come by, say hello, grab a beer or maybe a fizzy water if booze is not your thing. Info at climbersfest.org. Um, yeah, and see what's going on. There's there's more interesting things than me sitting at a table under a easy up. So um, go go check it out. But uh, do say hi. Okay, John Long. So John Long's making the rounds. He's got a new book out, The uh, Icarus Syndrome. And I think personally of all the things I've read, and I've read a lot of his stuff, I think it's the best thing he's ever done. Yes, all of his writing is fun to read. He's one of the great adventure writers. But this is a whole different animal, which we talk about a lot, actually. And a lot of times when folks come on with a book, you know, this is a different kind of show. So I don't I don't really like to hang on the stuff that people are promoting. But we do end up talking a lot about the book because it's uh it's autobiographical and it's a it's a lot of ways a framing of of John's life and, and uh so it was a good place to touch as we talked a bit about each part of his life. I met John Long years and years and years ago in Santa Monica or West LA actually. He was climbing at the gym that I worked at there. And like most people, I'd read some of his stuff and I had this image of John Long. I'd watched the How to Rock Climb or Rock Climbing Basics and How to Lead or The Art of Leading. No, The Art of Leading. I think these things are on YouTube. In fact, I know they're on YouTube. So if you have 45 minutes to kill and you want just a time machine, like a total time warp into the 80s, Go watch The Art of Leading on YouTube. Just just search it on there and it'll come right up. And you will, yes, you will witness what it was like. There's some of the visionaries of rock climbing in there. There's skit comedy. There's incredible 80s music. There's short shorts. There's painter's pants. There's Gramici pants. John Long, Ron Kauk, Mary Gingery. I mean, it's all in there. So yeah, check that out. And then I think the other one's like basic, like, climbing basics but get into it on there and you'll see what it was like to uh to grow up 
with John Long as your teacher. I'll put the link on the uh, post, you know, the show notes. I don't really do show notes. Have you noticed that? I've never really brought up show notes. I'm supposed to do show notes. But you know what? You can find it. You can find whatever you want. Just Google John Long if you want to know more about John Long. Do your own research. You don't need my show notes. Anyway, but I'll put it on the post, the link to The Art of Leading anyway. All right, so what I try to do with this interview is try to reveal to you guys a John Long that I met many, many years ago in West L.A. in the 90s at that point. And I had an image of John Long at the time, similar to probably what most people have, is this sort of bombastic, straight-ahead adventure guy, big guy, you know, gruff kind of say it like it is sort of dude. And what I got when I met John was a lot different than that. And so what I tried to do with this interview is to reveal some of that other person, some of that uh, deeper person that I think John Long is and I've gotten to know over the years, just to sort of break that mold that we've created, that he's created, frankly, around this guy, Largo, John Long, bigger than life. We made an attempt to go deeper and we used the book as a framing piece because it goes pretty deep into his life. And it's a very personal book, very different from some of his previous books. But you can decide whether we got that deep or not, whether we made it there. Personally, I enjoyed the hell out of catching up with John. I hadn't seen him in a long time. I usually run into him at trade shows. They're not really doing those now. I don't know if they'll ever come back after the pandemic. So I haven't seen him in a spell. And if you guys want to get the book, do you want to get the book? You do want to get the book. If you want to get a hard copy of the book, Go straight to the publisher, D'Angelo Publications, d'angelopublications.com. You can get it elsewhere where you get books, but you know why not go, go to the source? Hook those folks up, the people that took a chance on publishing something and see what would happen. Cut, cut Mr. Bezos out of that. He's got plenty, that guy. All right, let's get to it. Conversation with John Long. If there's one thing that's held true in climbing for 30 years, it's that you can't kill the damn mythos. That's right. Sportiva's famous mythos climbing shoe is still as popular as ever after 30 years edging, smearing, and crack climbing worldwide. And to celebrate the start of its dirty 30s, Sportiva's issuing the mythos 30th anniversary edition. Same cult classic design, but built from eco-friendly materials and manufacturing and with a jaunty color twist. How jaunty? Well, you know how those Euros roll. What also remains is the comfort and performance of this stalwart classic. Comfort and performance, you cry. I call foul, Calouse. But that really is the magic of the mythos, especially if your quiver needs an all-day shoe that will caress your toes like a trip to the spa. Because let's face it, aggressive shoes are great for the short shots, but it's hard to climb your best on pitch 12 when you feel like somebody pounded your toes flat with a ball-peen hammer. So if you're feeling legendary, then have a look at the 30th anniversary mythos and the more subdued flash of the eco mythos at sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. I went up there one time and it was overcast, right? In Redstone. And it was during the week and there wasn't hardly anybody on that road. And I started down and it was it started raining like for real. So I turned around and went back to Dwayne's. I said, hey, do you have a park I can use or whatever? Because I'm, I'm going to get this right in no matter what, but I don't want to be soaked to the bone. 
He goes, yeah, yeah, here, here you go. So I got about a mile down and he gave me some cheap thing. And I turned around. It was just like a sieve. So I turned around and went back. He gave me a, like a Gore-Tex one, right? Made it about a mile. And <laughs> at this point, it's like typhoon shit, right? Up there. From nowhere, it just came in. I, I think I know around. where this story's going, but go ahead. I turned, I turned around and went back. Like the the river down there is like, you know, doing yeah. all that. I go, I think I'm going to have to wait this out for a little bit, right? So I waited and waited and we drank some coffee and fucked around a bit. And then I go, I'm going for it. So I got about five miles, you know, too far to turn around. Like you're in the, in the canyon for real, right? And it starts like hailing and like I've been in weather before. You know, I've done plenty of expeditions and been... In, in places like Erie and Jaya, New Guinea, what happened, Venezuela and Rainforest, where it rains like for real. And this is like off the hook, man. Out of nowhere, it's just like the road's like swimming and there's cascades coming down those gullies and cool, mud couliers to the left. And then it gets worse. And then it starts hailing so much. The only way that I can even see where I'm going is get out in the middle of the road and look at the the line, keep my head down like that. And I'm pelted, you know, it's it's like full on epic. And I finally get down where the canyon opens up after just, I might've gotten washed into the river down there. A couple of cars were like pulled over and people were like all gripped. And I get down there and all of a sudden the sky clears and everything just is fine. Sun comes out, I'm like all muddy and you know, I pull into town and people are walking around. It's like nothing ever happened. Like it never happened. Yeah. Like the previous hour was just in my head. I was just right. like, wow, wow, this is trippy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that you got, um, because that, that actually section because of that closes because of mudslides all the time. So I was, I was waiting for a mudslide story in there because that road will get washed over with a foot of mud and they'll have to go, go bulldoze it out every once in a while from those kinds of, kinds of cloud bursts that I think they back up on Sopris or something. That's really what I was afraid of was that as I went by one of these draws, a sluice would like pour onto the onto the road, just wash me into the river. The river well, like there. I said, it was it was a reasonable fear because it happens. Yeah. It happens all the time. But it never happened. So. All, all, all I got, you know, it's like I, nothing happened at all, other than getting right. pelted. The hail was something I, I hadn't actually exp- like. It was that thick. Like I thought right. it was going to go down on my bike and. You know, and I'm like, well, I could use a good epic, you know, once in a while, wash me clean, yeah. whatever. But it was, so, it was so quick. You know, it came out of nowhere. It was so quick, and then it was gone. And I entered a world that was completely oblivious to it. I was, I was thinking, I'm going to tell some, I got to tell somebody about this. And I go, ah, that, whatever, man. People are going to get yeah, whatever, Largo. <laughs> no, shit. I told you. You're, you're I absolutely. You're, make, 100, you're making hun- shit up again. Yeah, no, I hundred percent believe it because I <laughs> lived there. I lived up there myself. So yeah, and, it, and like you said, once you get out of the canyon and a little bit away from so- Sopris, because I think that's probably what does it is it backs up on Sopris up there that because it sticks up so high, right? All yeah. of a sudden, it's one of the highest reliefs in Colorado. Is that road <laughs> to the top of um, Sopris? Just the relief there is like seven thousand feet and. And um, yeah, in like less than a mile. So it's a big thing sticking up and in the yeah. way. I love that area. I think it's great. I lo- I've always liked Carbondale as well. I spent a couple months like seriously climbing an Aspen low ages ago when I was in like grad school or something. Mm-hmm. In fact. Yeah, yeah. Down in uh, down in Ofer Telluride area too, I believe. Yeah, we did a couple of really good routes down there. Yeah, yeah. The um, Ofer broke. One of the classics. Yeah. yeah that's a, <laughs> God, I wonder how, I hope that's, 
hope that thing sees traffic because if it was in Yosemite, it'd be all time. Yeah, it gets done occasionally. It's a little bit of a walk um, up to there, but um, I've done it. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. You got to you sort of try on that one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, I guess like like legit five twelve crack. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Couldn't it's a great. Right. It, yeah, and those are kind of rare, really nice splitters like that. Yeah. Um that hard. So well, you know, um, Robbins, Roy Robbins had had his climbing school up there, and I was supposed to be teaching for his climbing school. We never got any students. He had told me right before I went, I go, hey, there's this crack called Lankies or something. He goes, if anybody free climbs, it would be one of the great cracks in the United States. Man, we were on it the next day, as soon as I got there. Problem was, I'd been I'd been going to grad school that year, and I hadn't been climbing much because I couldn't. Yeah, you know, like boulder a little bit, you know, maybe twice a week or whatever. But when we did it, I was like, well, it just wasn't in really good shape, so it seemed doubly horrendous. Then I went back after we'd been there six weeks or so, and it felt quite a bit better. But then I knew the route. Yeah, you know, a little tricky at the bottom there. And that's what became Ofer Broke. Yeah. Oh, cool. Right on. It's a great name too. <laughs> Yeah, so we're here talking kind of because, I mean, we've talked about trying to get this done for years because you've been coming to Carbondale, but usually you're pretty busy when you're here and you sort of like are on, uh, you're on the schedule that was presented to you by Rock and Ice and Dwayne and those guys because you were here for their writing symposium. Um, So it never really got done, but now we're talking online because of this book that just came out, Icarus Syndrome. And and, if I may interject something here. Go ahead. you, You have a radio voice if I've ever heard one. And it's not flattery. You sound like the guy doing movie trailers, man. You been smoking cigars or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't know where this voice came from. I just kind of lucked into it. it in terms of like turning it into this podcast. Um, I've always had it. I think I talk a little more nasally when I'm just like hanging out. I was yeah, so mail. well, thanks. I was thinking of mail thanks on this, in, but like I, I'm hearing your voice going, "Shit, I gotta, I gotta show up for this one." <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, showing up. But yeah, so you, the the book is, uh, and thanks again, but the book is Icarus Syndrome, and it's sort of a short story collection in a way, but hangs together, um, not unlike uh, other books you've read. And I haven't read probably your whole um, catalog, but a lot of them over the years. Some of the stories have hints of, of stories you've written in the past. This, the particular one that I remember really clearly is The Tubes down in Venezuela. But the thing I noticed about this book, to me, it feels much more personal, much more of, you know, how these events rather, rather than just telling us this wild tale that's going to raise our, raise our hair, it, it, how those events affected you, you know, personal accounts, a lot more details. Um, so what was kind of the, I think this is a great place to start as the book, because then we can talk about your life because it's so much in there. Why was it time in, 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 am I reading this right to, to tell some of these stories from a, a think a deeper and more personal level. One is uh, you're asking me to deconstruct my writing career. And, and there's two things to consider when you're doing that. One is nobody is as tedious as a writer talking about their own stuff. That's the first thing. And second is the writers never write about it, but uh, I'll take a shot at it. I was originally drawn to short form literary nonfiction and fiction writing. Don't know why it just felt, write to me and I was always involved in doing writing since I was 12 or 13 I got in just started doing it and then went through all the steps you know the high school art stuff and then undergraduate and graduate school studying lit and by the time I was I don't know 19 or 20 I was doing some significant climbing things and so there was always offers on the board 
to write about, you know, stuff we were doing. One, I was super immature and not very developed in terms of writing. And so the original stories I wrote were hijinks, blockbuster, cliffhanger kind of things. And as I got older, you know, naturally you start developing a little bit more and actual literary short form nonfiction and fiction writing. That was the well that I was always drawing from. And you just start going in that direction. I mean, it's inevitable to the point that the original stuff was, I mean, there was great stories there, but as you said, there were, there were more sort of action oriented. They weren't narrative driven, they were action driven. And as I developed a little bit more, like some people really hit, you know, writers hit their stride fairly young. I, I mean, I got to always write interesting stuff or, or stuff people could tolerate. But I didn't, I didn't develop a, like an existential sense. It was the action that sort of, action and comedy and just sort of generally fucking around. That was the, that was the thrust. That's, that was, that's what pulled people through those things. And then later, as I matured a bit, you know, the stories just started to get more personal and more intuitive and it took a long time to undo a lot of the stuff I'd learned in school and from, you know, reading other people and what have you. And until I sort of found a, a more naturalistic kind of style, it got increasingly true to the actual experience of those, whatever the story was. And the personal ones were became more and more interesting to the point to where even if I was writing about, I mean, I haven't written about adventure stuff primarily in probably 15 years. But at some point, the stories became just narrative stories that were incidentally about adventure, if in fact they were, because most of them weren't. You know, it took me a long time to get psychologically get out of camp four. The same thing sort of happened with the writing. It just took a long time to sort of claw my way out of barn burner kind of stories. The, the process of actually putting the narrator first and what that meant and what, you know, how that was going to affect the voicing and the characterization and all the rest of it. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it happened organically. I wasn't really trying to do it, but uh, it, it did. It just happened. I, I got a lot of feedback from from big time writers that didn't know anything about adventure and didn't care. Those that did didn't care. They were like, hey, have you thought about doing this? Or how about this? Or maybe rework this? Or, you know, sort of pushing me in the direction of uh, of where the stories in Icarus and them sort of ended up. Well, it, it's funny you say that because I, I, I've known you for a long time, actually, very casually from way back in, in uh, West L.A. at the at the Rock Creation. And um, and that was like 30 years ago, practically now. So um, and, and then we've touched we've touched base every once in a while at trade shows here in Carbondale and whatnot. And we have plenty of mutual friends. And I, I and and I've also read your writing as you've written it. You know, I've been around long enough to uh, to be getting the books when they were coming out. And so I actually felt that a little bit from the very first story in the book. I was like, okay, this is different. This is a different John Long than than I've read. And uh, and I imagine, I mean, right away, I imagined that maturity and that in that um, not not just in your writing, but in you personally. Um, which is kind of what I was sort of looking for in that question a little bit. But it reminds me, I, I bring this up fairly often, but one of my favorite books is The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And and his his notion, too, is that these are war stories that aren't about war. 
and they're about people and and interpersonal relationships and you know I, I don't know if you would blush for me to put you in the category with that book um but I felt the same thing in in these stories of like well wait this is about what happened between these people and uh and what happened to John when these things were happening um yeah that, so that, you you know what it is is basically you you have the writing approach which is okay how can I how can I cook this thing into a piece of writing that's from a narrative standpoint is interesting and yada yada. But then there's another sort of step, which is what's the truest personally, what is the truest way I can personally frame this experience? And that that's really what O'Brien did in the things with Carrie. But the I think for my for my money, the the queen, I should say, of doing that is is uh, Lucia Berlin, who who oddly enough died in 2005, just a couple miles from me. I'm in Venice, and she died in Marina del Rey. But she she had a crazy life, and her ability to do I think she's the best short story writer America's ever produced. She did O'Brien times five. She was that good. You know, I got hooked on her maybe 20 years ago. She had a bestseller that reprised the best stuff that she'd done over her lifetime. She was a raging alcoholic for a long time, but then she got sober. And for the last 20 years of her life, she was really productive and just did you know, amazing stuff right along the lines of what you're talking about O'Brien did in The Things We Carry, which is, this happened to me. This is, my, this is an experience I had, and I'm going to tell it as honestly as I can and as artfully as I can from a realistic, true first-person perspective. And mm -hmm. that's always been sort of my natural delivery anyway. So, you know, hats off and kudos to Lucia Berlin because uh, she was real influential on me. And so was O'Brien for that matter. Well, let's talk, talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, your relationship to the book, but also about you, uh, because we're here to kind of, kind of, I know you don't want to talk about the past, but we're going to talk a little bit about you as, as, as John Long versus just the author. And, and, and again, with, with the O'Brien thing and with the, that whole book, one of the things that you, you know, you've, you've kind of at least used to make sort of a, a career out of was a little bit of the tall tale of the, you know, this, this happened, but we may sort of embellish and, and roll through it. But in, in a, and again, like in an artistic way, O'Brien, I, you know, he, he had that line that, you know, there's the, 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 the truth and the happening truth or the. Nothing oh, true. Yeah. Nothing is absolutely true in love and war and what have. Like it, right. there's no absolute truth. It's just too mutable. It's too fluid. All of that stuff is so relative to your perspective. Somebody from in a foxhole is getting you know shells and grenades chucked at them. Their experience of the same thing is going to be different than somebody that's flying mm -hmm. around in a black hawk helicopter, right? Right. Or somebody that's looking at a, a news clip of it from Phoenix. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and, and his uh, the line I remembered now was uh, was that's a true story that didn't happen. It was a line from from there that that talks that kind of tries to define that that moment. And and in some ways, I I remember thinking about your stories like that. Like, wow, this is you know this is a bit of a tall tale. It's a bit of what happened. But let let's just talk about you as um, you you just said like a mentality of getting 
psychologically get out of camp for. And I kind of want to, I wanted to think, talk to you about that period in your life and you kind your, your stories about camp four, your stone master stories and those things kind of define that climbing era. And it's become this second golden age or this, this place that people really like to hang their hat on as being like, well, those were the days, like, I wish I had been there. And yet you and a lot of people and some people didn't, but you, you did move on to this other life of adventure for for better and worse, and we can get into that. But what kind of made you transition out of those years where you were 19, 20, 21, you know, banging it out in the valley, having these amazing adventures? And then what made uh, you, you know, going back to this title you have in your book, The Ic- Icarus Syndrome, it's sort of like you went out into the world to embrace that 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 same idea. Chenard says something years ago, and it, it took me forever to understand it, and that is the point of of doing, at least for him, the point of doing the adventure thing was not to become too much of an expert on stuff. And I started off as a, like I wanted to be a, a professional baseball player and I was super good at it, but not good enough to do that. But that was my goal. So I came out of a really structured, like hardcore goal oriented traditional sports background. And when I got into climbing, I was like, okay, I'm going to, how do I get into the Hall of Fame here, right? You know, then you meet Bridwell and, you know, all the rest of the Stone Masters sort of grow up around you. And you, I mean, those, that was a very ambitious group. It was performance driven big time. But at a deeper level, other than, you know, just trying to do feats and first ascents and, you know, all of that was the thing that electrified the whole experience for me was going up there and not knowing jack shit about much of anything and finding myself having experiences that, that one, seemed to come out of nowhere, and two, I couldn't have imagined in a million years. I mean, my goal for when I first went to Yosemite when I was 17 was I wanted to ultimately to climb El Cap. That was it. And then all of a sudden, you know, do this one and do that one and do that one and climb it in a day and then climb it in a half a day and then free climb it. That, yeah, all of that. It just kept escalating. But somewhere in there... Climbing, per se, became too familiar. It became so familiar that I think the last significant big wall I did was the new Reno Watkins, South Face of Mount Watkins with Ron Cow, Jim Bridwell, Kim Smith, and myself, four. Like, I'd never climbed a big wall of four people before, for good reason. But we ended up on that thing, and, you know, we got caught in a heat wave and a combination of, like, a perfect storm of horrendous suffering Watkins is like a, it's like a heat shield, just blinding white. And, you know, when we were up there in August and, you know, nobody can accuse us of being smart. Got to the top of the thing. We're so beat up from the heat and what have you. But towards the top of that thing, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at Kauk and Bridwell and Smith, who I'd known for years by that point. And then I, by that time I'd done 50 walls or something. And I knew this is a foregone conclusion. We're doing this. Like all, you know, three of any of us could go down and the remaining person could get us up this. And if all four of us are on, you know, hitting on all four cylinders, this route doesn't have a chance. Because we had, you know, between us, we had, I don't know how many, you know, first ascents and, you know, all of that. I mean, it was overkill. And it, it dawned on me that this is not the same kind of thing that I went to Yosemite or 
you know, went to the wild places looking for. And I'm not going to find that thrill here anymore. All I'm going to be doing is more of the same, maybe better, but it's not going to be something that's categorically different. Like, I know what this is about. And that's not to say I can't get better at it and yada, yada, but it's just not, it, the thrill was gone. It's always thrilling on a big wall, way up, you know, especially a new one. But the but the, the newness of it was gone. And I always wanted to do big adventure stuff. And most of the people that I grew up with, climbers, when they transitioned out of doing regional domestic stuff, almost everybody went into mountains, went to big peaks and what have you. And there was two things. One is I wanted to do something that felt a little more, more original. I was never much of a mountain man to begin with, and I freaking hated the cold beach. And I, I like the, you know, the heat. I like the sound of jungles and rivers. And, you know, the first job I had ever was when I was 15. I got a, I begged my way on to working as a laborer on a, a raft company that went down the Grand Canyon. You know, those boats that hammer down through the canyon, through other rabbits. So I, I always wanted to get back to that because I, I worked a summer of that, and then after that, after that summer, I was always climbing. But so I just wanted to do other things, and I wanted to go to other places people didn't hadn't gone to. But I still had a first ascent mentality. So if there was a rumor to be the world's largest river cave or some continent to cross, like we did in Borneo or whatever, I just sort of went in that direction and started reading old stuff and you know old explorer stuff, and we just. It just sort of morphed into, I didn't even know what to call it, just generic adventuring stuff. Any, anything that sounded interesting and anything that put me in a place where I could experience the first things I, I, I experienced when I first went to Yosemite, which was something completely unexpected and totally new in which I, I had no, to get back to Chenard's point, I wasn't an expert at any of that stuff at all. And that was just such a, you know, like some a billion miles out of my comfort zone. And for whatever reason, I just liked that. Like being out there, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know if it makes much sense even to me, but right. I, you know, I follow my instincts, and that's where it led me. No, I think it. I think it makes total sense. And one of the interesting things about when, in my head, when I met you again, it was it was just in a gym setting, way back before gyms, almost. You know, and I had this image of who you were because things like Gorilla Monsoon were already out. You know, you had this obvious big reputation in in climbing and in Yosemite and you know, fun loving, you were like this big dude, which is, you know, an unusual thing to run into climbing into, into weightlifting, into sort of building muscle. And, but then as soon as I met you, I remember just being like, kind of like, whoa, there's this whole other guy here, this, this, this real intellectual in a lot of ways. And I was wondering if you had anything to say about, about those two things, sort of how they go together in you and, and, you know, how they relate to your climbing and, and your adventure. It, it just always felt like I was like, wow, this is a really different person than I thought I was going to meet when I met John Long. And, and, and you know, and also that yeah, yeah. mentioning about how you were a sports, you know, like basically you were sort of a jock and all these sorts of things. I was like, wow, this is this really complicated person in a way that, you know, I never felt I got from like Jim Breadwell or I got um, from some of the people that that just did stay in Yosemite and and kept going, and some of whom are you know are gone, but some of them who are still going. Yeah, I, I think the best way I I can I can explain that, or the, the only way that I've ever been able to make sense of it myself is, I was always a book guy. 
you know, and a story person. Ever since I can remember, I always was had my nose buried in books and stories. And it came as a, a somewhat of a surprise to me even that I, I turned out to incidentally be really good at sports. But within my own body and my own psyche, I, I always felt and related to way more to the to the story stuff. I mean that was that was like in my DNA, and it was incidental. And I loved to do it because I always had like a a lot of energy, and you know it's fun to be good at something. And I was always good at sports and quite good at a few of them. And you know that was. That was real rewarding, and and it was fun doing it, and I liked the people, you know. But oddly enough, I always had sort of three parallel tracks going that that didn't cross pollinate a lot. One was the story art side, and then two was the sports thing, and then three was the meditation thing, which I, you know, started because I grew up next to a Zen center, and I've been involved in that for I mean my whole life basically, and. People in, in either one, you know, either of those three streams are sort of surprised. Oh, I didn't know you did any rock climber or people in the art world are like, what's going on with that meditation stuff? I was always sort of interested in that. And what the hell are you doing hanging on a rock or, you know, kayaking or what do you, what do you have to ride your bike every day? You know, <laughs> so, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, I've sort of freely traversed all three of those things. They've always seemed somewhat integrated in my life, but, uh, People from either those three streams or somebody outside of it would look at me and go, this guy must be sort of conflicted with all this stuff going on. It never really felt like that. Yeah. I never I never look at it like it, it like it made me any you know special or anything. It was just three. It wasn't like voluntary. It wasn't voluntary. I didn't consciously do that. It was just that's the shit that happened in my life. And, and those are the things that that interested me. And that's where I went. Yeah, I mean, I I remember sort of being delighted by it, actually, and, and because it was, you know, and I think a lot of people listening right now are going to be like, wait, meditation? And so you're absolutely right about not, like, having much crossover understanding. And, you know, you certainly have an image in climbing that's, you know, again, like the Stone Master thing is is kind of almost this brand that blew up in the last decade. I mean, a lot thanks to the film, the... the um the Valley Uprising film, but even before that. But yeah, I mean, that, and that's kind of the thing that like really has always intrigued me about you and also drawn me to you as a person is this, yeah, this kind of mixture or these, these, as you said, three streams that are going on and like hanging out with you as a climber and I get, I get these little glimpses of this other thing. And it, and it's, I think it's, I find it really intriguing. And I felt like this book more than the ones I've read started to kind of, bleed out a lot of those other things you know uh the story about the 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 jesuit uh art collector you know you know all, and i was like okay yeah this this all fits together about who you are which is i feel like why this book kind of was a bigger glimpse into the john long that i've gotten sort of glimpses of being a little bit closer to you than than your average climber yeah you know an interesting thing about approaching that book and and it's one of the things that just sort of clarified my life as I've gotten older is it's not about me. And that's always been the curse of, of people who who never worked out the nuances written in the first person. Like it's not the it's not about me, myself and I. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about an it's about 
just a human experience and you incidentally are there and and if you get caught in trying to posit your experience in terms of a brand or a as a celebration or an infomercial on yourself that stuff will never work because mm-hmm. you're it, it's you're self-absorbed with it you know you're, it's the bondage of self that everybody you know all the spiritual paths will tell you that's that's the trap of traps you know it's really not about me particularly in the new in this new book i i really tried to focus on what was the human experience for all involved you know drop into everybody and and mm-hmm. and try to reflect and have the have the narrative reflect what what the sort of whole gestalt like the whole mofo what what what, what is that about and it's a, it's about a lot more than just me you know this is a great way to bring this up which you will not i'm sure remember but you hopefully will know what i was talking about but another thing that happened when we met and you were I look at your life and in, in, at least from the outside looking in, you know, of these sort of transitions. I mean, everyone's lives are transitions and you were in, in Santa Monica. I think it was after a lot of this world travel. And, uh, and you said something to me about Largo, you know, your, 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 your nickname, your, I don't know how, how you put it. It's more than a nickname, but you said something to me at that time that, that Largo was dead or Largo needs to be gone or something like that. We were having a conversation and you were working through this idea, I think, of becoming more selfless was the impression I got that this Largo person, this this bash through the jungle kind of guy needed to take sort of a backseat in your life. Do you do you remember this uh, idea anyway, if not the conversation? Look, I really have no idea how the... Lar- Largo, incidentally, I grew up around Mexicans. My mom spoke Spanish. Largo is just my last name in Spanish. Yeah, just your last right? name in Spanish. And, and <laughs> I got coined that like in third grade. Mira Largo, you know, haciendo? You know, all of that stuff. And, and it just stuck. And I've had it all along. And then, of course, I got married to a Venezuelan. And my kids were born in Venezuela. And I ha- I've had one foot in Latino culture or Hispanic culture, whatever the proper word is. I've had one foot in that my basically my whole life and so you know that the Largo thing sort of mm-hmm. and even 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 my wife used to call me that my you know she passed a long, passed away a long time ago but it, nevertheless my intimates used to call me that and at at some point that that name got so wrapped up in mythology and you know Homeric exaggeration and all the rest of the stuff that you know I I it was just well, it wasn't real. That's the thing. I mean, it was fun and it served a purpose, and you know, gung ho and all of that. But uh, at some point, it's like, man, this doesn't really fit anymore. I don't feel like that anymore. I, I I need to move on from underneath that thing because the one thing about it is, I, you know, who knows why people become famous? But I I always was a magnet for attention and all the rest of it, and you know, certainly being young and insecure, I'm, I probably did what I could do to further, you know, building my name and all the rest of that stuff. But at, at some point or another, you know, you sort of get tired of that and it doesn't really matter. I remember the first time I had, I had my, I got my, I had my picture on the cover of a magazine. When I first saw it, you know, I was really young, 21 or something, 20 maybe. I first saw it, it was just, I was on cloud nine for about an hour. And then later I'm like, hey, wait a second. I don't feel any different. I'm still me. You slowly wake up to the fact that it's really just a concept in people's minds. 
it doesn't have anything to do with your internal experience or you know what's going on and and it doesn't it doesn't add to the richness of your life to be above anybody like i could never really carry off being better than or whatever with any authenticity because i never felt like like i never felt as though that was an authentic thing of being bigger badder you know i just like doing stuff but all the whole largo thing sort of encompassed and embraced and was a a flashpoint for somebody bigger way bigger than i ever was or ever wanted mm-hmm. to be i mean when you get right down to it i'm just another dude you know <laughs> well who incidentally had some in, you know really <laughs> interesting experiences but but on a you know rock bottom i'm just another guy man well it's funny because you you, you talked about four streams or four kind of these or three sorry these three paths and that was like my fourth one in my mind. I was like, well, he's also like this dude. He's also this guy, you know, because if I ran into you at the, at the trade show, it's like we could just shoot the shit. I, I actually, in my head, I was like, okay, the fourth stream is just John Long, the guy. And, uh, and he's a guy, you know, and, 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 it, and it's, it's, it's a good stream to have in my mind in terms of like, again, the way climbing and myself back then when I first met you and I was – mid 20s you had you on this pedestal and then pretty soon the guy you know that i would just climb with occasionally in the gym took you down and all of a sudden i started thinking about you as a person rather than this yeah. this thing that i had created in my head well, or you would help me create you know with with the, yeah. the the writing and the stories and things yeah well i think i hope this new book went in the opposite direction it was sort of the yes absolutely that's that's yeah that's why i'm like so so uh i was moved by you know the yeah you know the thing is that the ultimately what you're well i don't know i don't know about ultimately but i don't want to make ultimate statements they always backfire but at least at this point just being amongst your peers you know it's like you talk to really like the old farts that that are that spent a lot of time doing climbing or adventuring or whatever. It's not the big conquest that, that remain with them. What remains of them is one being out there and active and two, the friendships they made. Mm-hmm. And none of that has to do with any kind of hierarchy. And I got a lot of that from, uh, the two guys that I climbed with a lot, uh, early on who were from the same city as I grew up in, which is Rick Akamatsu, who was fantastic not acknowledged as being one of the great Americans, but he really was one of the great American climbers. And then Richard Harrison, of course, people know about him because mm-hmm. he developed the Red Rocks and he climbed everything, right? Anything you can think of, like any summit you can think of from Chip Rock to the totem pole. I mean, he did everything. And then, of course, did all that great stuff in the Red Rocks. But, you know, we all came from nowhere in particular, Upland, California. And early on, when we were up at Suicide and talk, he's climbing all the time. We were a lot better than just about everybody when we started, simply because we were doing it a lot more. I mean, that was a trick, and that—that's what gym climbing and sport climbing has shown: is that it's really mileage. And if you start off nowadays in a climbing camp at a climbing gym, you are going to be climbing fifty times more than anybody ever did in the '60s. Every day you go in there, and you're going to work out, and you're going to be coaching, you're going to be doing. Pull, you know, doing laps on 513s and nobody ever put that kind of time in beforehand because you didn't have the convenience of a climbing gym. Mm-hmm. And ergo, people that, you know, now we're 
looking at what a third or fourth generation of a gym climber. I mean, it's unbelievable how good people have gotten simply because they've done it so much more. They've normalized what was, you know, peak experiences for just the previous generation. So we, we were bouldering every day, like from the, from the start. And one of the things that Richard started doing was at the end of the day, we had a reputation by that time. And he'd look around and there would be people around and Richard would just ask, Hey, uh, Hey, you want to do a route? Be like four or five. And people look, hey, well, I'll do a route with you. And he goes, well, what's what's the route you've always wanted to do up here? And people had these dream routes they never imagined in a million years they were going to do. And as soon as the as soon as the, the words were off the guy's lip, he goes, grab the rope, we're going. And and so we 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 started taking complete strangers up their dream routes at the end of the day and just kept doing that. And mm-hmm. it was so fun. To watch people who weren't, you know, dyed in the wool or or dedicated in the way that we were at all, but still had dreams about stuff. And, and to see people get up those things, just regular people, those were some of the greatest experiences I had. Just because, just because, you know, just sharing that moment with those people who never in a million years thought they could climb Valhalla, for instance, you know, the, the, the gate the gateway climb to get into the stone masters originally, you know, and, uh, God, we used to have a mule train of people going up stuff and it was just so fun. And that didn't have anything to do with trying to break records or whatever, but it was all a group. Mm -hmm. And I think what it was is at bottom, what we really wanted was community more than anything. We wanted something to love. We found that in climbing and and in each other with our partnerships. And then we, we had a, community and at that time climbing was was not so popular that it was didn't feel like it was an exploration or an invention of a kind right and with all of the things going and this little clique of people that we had you know it got a lot of synergy and you know a conflagration of a bunch of different things you know i mean everybody's looking for something to love right and we found it and that that was the that was the true genius and 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 joy of that whole thing you know you were climbing up at suicide talk heats pretty early in your teens yeah i mean i started well i started i learned how to climb when i was 16 just turned 16 right. okay because i got up i always wanted to do it but i there was no schools or anything at that time sure sure well there were sierra club things but you know i wasn't really a club guy and I've, I've found, <laughs> Until you made your own club, yeah, we sort of made it. <laughs> had its well, own I rules. did take some lessons. I got a guy. I got <laughs> right. a guy that was part of the Riverside Mountain Rescue sure. team that knew all about safety stuff. He gave me. He took me out twice, and he really Jacksoner. He really knew what he was doing, and he hammered it into my mind. You know how to belay, how to how to you know build anchors, all that stuff. So I got the basics down, and then I just recruited Rick and Richard, and we just went from there. I couldn't do those trips until I had a driver's license, but the, sure. mo- the yeah, moment I, guess I, those, yeah. the moment I was yeah. 16, I could drive. So I got, took the lessons and then we just went from there. But, you know, I went up to suicide after the two lessons, got on a couple of things and just got spanked, man, like bad. Actually, it was a talk. It's like the exposure and all the rest of the stuff. It was like, man, this is, I'm over my head here. <clears throat> and somebody gave us the, the tip. Well, go to Rubido. It's a practice climbing area, bouldering. And, you know, that's where the Sierra Club practices repelling and they top rope stuff. And so that was right down the street. So we used to, we set our sights from, shifted from 
Takis and Suicide over Rubido, which is 10 to 40 feet high. And we went there every day for six months. And at the end of that, and I was still 16, I think, like we could boulder pretty good. Like we were doing V5 stuff. And nothing now, but I mean, back then. So we went back to Suicide. And we First route we did was 510, and we were just off to the races. So that's how that happened. And, you know, there were, there were, there were some really good, a couple really, really good climbers that had done a bunch of stuff there, but not, you know, like the really hard stuff was still waiting to be done. So a lot of, a lot of gaps to fill and, you know, new things to do. I mean, it's, it's sometimes hard to define or, or to, to go back to that era intellectually, if you will. But do you have a feeling of what drew you so instantly and so fully to climbing and stepping away from like we were talking about being a jock and being in this regimented world of baseball. Do you, do you have an idea now as a older yeah, well, person to be like, one is this the, is why. Yeah, yeah. One is the first time I got off the ground at Joshua tree, you know, when I took the first lessons, I'm like, Oh man, this is cool. Like I just love doing it. And then as soon as I got together with Rick and Richard, it was like a dream machine. You know, it was like all of the stuff is out there. And we can do all of it if we want to, I think. Uh, well, let's find out what we can do. And it was just, for, for whatever reason, it just was so enchanting. But then there was something else, and that is, well, two things. One is we could go out to Joshua Tree, to Intersection Rock, and you know, look, you'd look up and there's like three super prominent slanting cracks right at the, you know, the intersection of the road where everybody goes and none of them had been free climbed. And it was like that all over the place. We walked out to, you've been out to Joshua Tree, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 We walked out to the Lost Horse Rangers station area. Nobody had ever done a route there. You know, <laughs> it's like a billion square acres, man. Cracks everywhere. You know, formations that, you know, we had it all to ourselves. Now there's over 3,000 routes in that area alone. So when the pickings were that, you know, ripe, and we knew it too. We go, hey, this is not going to last, man. As soon as we started checking stuff off, you know, it was like a swarm of bees. People started going to those areas and doing things. And early on, we realized you got to be a sort of discreet explorer because there's going to be people on your on your heels. So get the good, you know, get it while it getting's good because it's not going to last. So that that has something to do with it as well. But it was a whole gestalt of the whole thing, you know. I loved doing it. We had great partners. We found something to love. There was all of this stuff to do. You know, there's a synergy of the group, and, and it developed its own momentum. And we were just swept into something that was bigger than we were. And that was a great feeling, too. What was the time frame from turning 16 to the Watkins thing where you were suddenly had this moment of, like, I think maybe this is it for me, about. When we really started for real, I was 17. And by the time I was 27, pushing 28, that was it. Mm -hmm. That was it for, at least for the, this is my life phase. And during that time, I climbed, I figured I climbed about 300 days a year, each one of those years. I and mean, that includes bouldering. And remember, when I first started, we first started, you know, bouldering was something people might do, cock around a little bit or whatever, but it wasn't a thing in itself. For or it was for, but for very very few people, you are eccentric or something, right? Why not do the real thing, right? We embraced it right off because we could do it. There were bouldering areas there, and there wasn't anything else to do. So if we were going to go climbing, it was going to be bouldering, and we did. 
And, you know, bouldering was a way different thing back then, though, completely. I mean, I weighed a lot. And so I started <laughs> dead pointing and doing dynamic moves and stuff like right off the bat because a lot of static climbing was just, it was really awful on my fingers. And so if I could dead point by, past something or, glide, you know, power glide by stuff, I would do it because it was just a lot easier on me because it was all static. Oh, you can't do that, right? And I get a lot of guff from doing it. Well, you didn't do it static. I'm like, dude, there's a start and a finish to a boulder problem. What I do in between is my business. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I, you know, I, I have a foot in, in the old bouldering world of like a piece of carpet, no pads. Um, have and, and actually started in this stomping grounds of yours for a moment anyway, Horsetooth Reservoir um, with, with the famous pinch overhang. And uh, But yeah, so I have this like, Way back in my past yeah, for a minute. Hey, the, you know, the painful. You, you know, when I first painful, went to Horse Root yeah. Reservoir, which I I still think is for a place, a modern boulder, just to go there for a day and just do, you know, do stuff, it's still mm-hmm. got to be a great destination area. Just yeah, to sure. go there and do all those classic things. And when I first went there with Backer, you know, it was, it was a little hairy because there was no pads. I didn't even have a strip of carpet. You just chalk up and just hawk for that stuff, right? And you had to be careful because there's some bad falls on some of that that stuff. And we were on-siding all of it. Like he had, you know, left all the eliminator problems and all that stuff on the uh, pinch over it. What's, what's the name of that boulder? Yeah, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know. But there were some high, you know, it wasn't so much that it was so high, it was just bad landings, right? Yeah, yeah. So you had to, and we were essentially having to on-site that stuff. So you had to be, you had to be careful. And I loved those times. And, and the times that we went down, you know, saw Gil and he took us on all these tours. And, you know, that was, those are wonderful times. Let me bring it back to your uh, to your book again. I think it's a, a, just a framing piece we're using here. It's titled Ic- Icarus Syndrome. And I have the, the the place pulled up where you kind of define that in the, in the story about speed climbing on El Cap and Quinn and uh, a, a few other people in there. You mentioned in there that you, it was a thing you had conceptualized previously. How do you define your the Icarus syndrome in terms of your life or and climbing? We're talking about a different time, right? And like the mindset from the ground up ethos that I or ethic that I I grew up with, it wasn't just a matter of how hard you could do you know do things, but it was like how you did it. And there's a certain style, and you didn't want to dilute the on-site adventure first time embracing something and see what happens kind of thing. Like the idea of wrapping off the top of El Cap to rehearse something before you... I mean, that was... You would have been shot. I mean, that just went, went so against the ethics because it diluted the pure adventure of going up there and seeing what you could find. Well, that's a very limiting approach if you're trying to do modern-esque you know, kind of climbing, you're not, you're just not going to do it. All that stuff is rehearsed or most of it. That come what may kind of thing and throw yourself at stuff. And, you know, that's always going to involve being out of your comfort zone. And also a big part of that is risk management, which is you don't know how far you can push it until something untoward is going to happen. That's what you're managing more, more than just, more than just trying, can I, can I lie back up this crack or can I canvas myself over this headwall? What's the consequences if I can't do this, right? And you don't know 
and you're walking right on the razor's edge there. And that's what Icarus did, which is how close to this, you know, burning fireball can I get before I'll just perish? And seeing how close you could get, you know, that was a spectacularly addictive and uh, it just had a lot of horsepower existentially. It was fantastic experience to try to do. And it Especially if you're if you're on site speed climbing, which is basically all, all I ever. I mean, the, when we climbed the nose in a day, I'd done it once before, so it wasn't truly on site. But you know, next year I went up with Dale Bard and we on site of the West Face of El Cap in five hours, and then we I did a bunch of other other ones like that too, where I'd never even seen a thing. We're just going full bore. You know, that's pretty dangerous actually, and we knew it was, but it certainly was exhilarating. And it was the Icarus syndrome it was okay how. How much exhilaration can you handle before it's going to take you out? So when did you, if you did, or if there was a moment, but when did you start to internalize this syndrome in yourself? And, you know, if you want to take the analogy further, realize that your wings were getting pretty melted <laughs> and, uh, and may- maybe, maybe it was a, a, a moment of reflection because again, looking at your career, you left Yosemite and then you replace climbing with all this other things and you, and you just were, it, it, it appears to me you were just barreling forward, you know, and haphazardly in a way, but just like, what's next, what's next, what's next. But then that's at some point seems to have changed. Did you have a moment or did you have an era when you were like, okay, yeah, the wings are, the, the feathers are falling off here. You start losing people for starters. Sure. You know, I had a lot of partners that just, flat out died and not a lot but enough and that that you know of course was a wake-up call and then you know there's some a bunch of close calls i i had a couple of close calls in, in climbing as well especially out of joshua pretty early on because backer who was one of my primary climbing partners and he was probably you know questionably the best free climber in the world at one time and the problem was he was living at joshua tree when i was going to college full-time so he would climb hard seven days a week, and I would be lucky to climb hard one day a week. You know, I could usually catch up to him fitness-wise about halfway through the summer, but not in the winter time. I just wasn't climbing enough. And yet I would go out there, oftentimes hook up with him. We'd climb the whole weekend, and I, we wouldn't even use a rope, just solo everything. And a couple times I got into situations where it was very sketchy, and you know, it happened two or three times. And by the third time, you know, I was like, you know, this is not sustainable, man. Not for you. Maybe John can do this and he probably will be able to. But if I keep trying to chase him up stuff here with this level of fitness, my head's, you know, in a book, basically, it's going to get me. And I knew it. And I sort of, I kept so long, but not, I didn't try to, I abruptly stopped trying to do it at anything remotely at his level. That was, that was the first thing. And then a, cu- a couple of those other trips we got, I remember being in the middle of Borneo, Rick originally got typhoid and malaria. He'd come to Borneo. We we're trying to do the first coast to coast traverse of the fifth largest island in the world. There was no maps for the end. In- most of the inter- you know, interior, it sounds crazy to say this now, but there was just no maps for the place. 
and we we're following these old native Kunan Dayak trails and Ridgeway had gotten malaria and typhoid and could barely walk and we got to this slash and burn area that was still sort of smoldering. We had to creak our way across these logs and I thought he was going to fall into these embers and just be immolated. And this thing went for a while and this is like 40 days into this trip. And I'm like, wow, you can't repel out of Borneo. You know, I'm we're here and, you know, you can die doing this stuff. You know, I had a couple of those kind of things and then Losing Carl Banish when we were doing the base jumping thing. That was another story in that book. And, you know, he just repeatedly had those kinds of experiences. At, at some point, you're going to start questioning. Even I started questioning. You know, I don't, I'm not sure. Certain aspects of this thing, I'm not, you know, it's starting to feel sort of sketchy, if not just stupid. Didn't before because I hadn't, I hadn't seen the shadow side of that stuff enough. And I'd gotten lucky and I had a bunch of, you know, close escapes. But, you know, like... <sighs> Once people started dying or or getting, you know, really badly fucked up or whatever, and, you know, getting scared enough and I had my timbers shivered enough, you know, it just didn't, it's the pure danger stuff started losing its luster. I didn't have the same taste for it. I think it's, it's a natural progression. And I started looking for other things that were interesting <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in, in again, like the, the the multiple paths, like it seems like you started more of a career and also became more of a career writer. You opened up in the book more than I've seen you anywhere in writing, but may, maybe I've missed something. But um, you know, I've, and I've always had hints of, and you, and you've dropped it into this as well. Was this period in, in Venezuela where, um, you know, you did start a family, and this was the first time that I. I think I've read about at least a few of the details of that falling apart and, and how it, how it affected you. Is that something you've kept to yourself or did I miss something or was this the kind of the first no, time no, that you, you sort of talked I about mean, that I just, publicly? I hadn't in my writing just hadn't got a turn. You know, it, it didn't, it wasn't that personal. Sure. You know, and, and it was right. Reading, you know, I'd read everybody pretty much. But Berlin, mm-hmm. Ber, but uh, Lucia, back to Berlin. Yeah, yeah Lucia Berlin. Lucia. Gave, right. Yeah, she gave me permission to just jump into my life, like full bore, because she mm-hmm. was completely. Uh, that was her deal, you know. So I, I needed the influence of feminine writers actually to be able to get get to that, because the guys are they'll dandify it and what have you. But they, but there was another there was another woman. Uh, Eve Babbitts, who wrote a lot about L.A. She was more of a paparazzi person, but her stuff was fantastically personal and really interesting because he's real bright. Mm -hmm. And those two two writers I I binged on for about a year, and I'm like, you know, that's where I need to go. I need to go here. Well, it's interesting because there's a word, (laughs) and it's like, you know, it's a very sort of popular word, uh, vulnerability. And, And you know, it may be almost cliche now. It's, start, it's starting to get there, but that—that that was honestly my thought. And again, I still have this vestige of John Long, the John Long I thought you were, and and I think a lot of climbers think you are. It's still in there. And so when I was like, "Wow, John Long vulnerable is pretty amazing," you know, this this is like we're just you know, and it was only a few paragraphs about that specifically about um, your wife and and. Um, yeah, you mental health that and things like too that. Hard. Yeah. Right, right. And I agree, but it was enough in there. I was like, holy cow, here it is. You know, and here's 
you know, you, you, the pain it was causing you and, and what that meant to you. And, and, you know, there's, and so, yeah, I was, I was kind of impressed with that as well in this particular part of the book. And I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. And, and again, maturity and things like that came into my head. Yeah. I mean, vulnerability in anything is going to be, is going to get your attention because it's real. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the bottom line on all that stuff. It's well, okay. What are you really thinking or feeling or whatever? And, and again, you have to be very deft with that stuff. Otherwise, it can seem like you're using it as a device or you're mm-hmm. playing mm-hmm. into the this or that. But if you just stick with, well, what happened? What's basically the 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 gauge I use when I when I get into storytelling? You don't want to get modeling. You don't want to you know you don't want treacle. You don't want any of that. But the 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 gauge is what well what's at, what's true like mm-hmm. what's the truest representation of this that I can put out there and if you do that you know you're usually going to be in good shape not oh, not right. not what's the most exciting or what's gonna, right. what's going to goose the crowd the most but what's what's really true about this stuff well yeah and there's a couple stories in here that are decidedly unexciting they're interspersed but yeah again sort of a first time reading for me, reading that kind of stuff from you as well. But the reason I brought up the, the Venezuela part of things is, you know, along that arc we were talking about of the Icarus syndrome and realizing that danger was was maybe not the drug it once was for you. Um, that that kind of like attempt to settle down, did that fit into that narrative? And and not that it worked out, but, you know, because the the, the, the phrase settle down, a lot of times I equate that with literally like, I can't keep doing this or I'm going to die. Um, and, and it's and it, within climbing, it's seen as very negative. Oh, like he settled down, like, you know, and I'm, I have a kid now, so I, I'm very aware of what it means to settle down in terms of like risk and in my climbing and things like that. So I kind of was like, well, was this like this moment where, where John was like, I, I can do this family thing. I can do this once. Um, because I, I, as far as I know, you never did it again. No, well, I'm still doing it because I have two daughters and, well, yeah, and, yeah. you know, so that yeah, that's a fantastic thing. I, I was really blessed with that. I mean, I got the older one's a pediatrician, the young one's an oil engineer down in Argentina. But I see him, you know, as much as I can. And uh, I'm not alone in in thinking that the 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 catchword for my twenties was velocity. You know, and at some point you're gonna start wondering, I mean, I was going so fast, I wasn't really sure everything was was blurred and then as the meditation practice got you know started stalling me a little bit i started want you know and i i would do retreats and what have you where you just do nothing for you know weeks and the world took on a completely different appearance and that became as interesting as going at light speed so you know the goofy part about all this stuff is how how utterly undirected it was. Like I didn't make any conscious decision. Oh, I'm now I'm going to slow down. It's just it's just maybe it's just natural. You know, I didn't have as much quite as much, you know, crazy whatever energy going. Yeah, you just pause a bit, and you see a different world out there, and you see yourself in yeah, a I mean, different I, way, and you see other yeah, people I'm, in a different way. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because I've said that to people like, look, I know you think that 
you're never going to change and you're like you know it's like but look you know you don't again you don't just say all right i'm done climbing well some people do and you throw all your stuff away it's like all of a sudden you're right right all of a sudden you're climbing in the gym more like when i met you you were you were you'd fully embrace the gym i mean it was an early gym in in the history of those yeah but how much uh, fun was it yeah it was super fun. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, sport climbing is really fun too. Oh no, um, that's all I do anymore. Exactly. Yeah, me too, pretty much. <laughs> but, um, well, yeah. I mean, so let me ask you a little bit as we're getting to the end here, a little bit about age. Um, we started this where we were. I, I don't think we we're on the mics, but we were talking about climbing in the gym, and and that you are still climbing, and and went in there, and how hard it is to climb the steep stuff, and you know how how you have to be strong. So, you know, at, at this place in your life as a climber, as an artist, uh, author, uh, however you want to express it, what's like your reflection on what's getting you excited? What's your pursuits now that, that, you know, over the years and now replaced this action packed kind of world that, that you once had dipped into? Something you said, you're, you're probably interviewing a lot of people in their twenties, early thirties, you know, they're making history and doing you know, fantastic things and they can't see their life as being any different. But, you know, my, mine, my life had always seemed like it was in a constant change, a constant state of change and morphing into this and in ways I could never have imagined. The one constant that's, that's been with me from the day that I first went climbing, my first climbing trip out to Joshua Tree was I just physically liked moving up I just did. It, you know, it made me present. I liked the moves. I was always physical, you know, like a physically based athletic person. And there's just something about doing that, which has never gotten old. Yeah, it did get old soloing and the risk taking and thinking that I had to go. Every time I went to Yosemite, I had to do something better and bigger and harder and historic. And, you know, that, that, that stuff it's no longer relevant. I couldn't do it if I had to. But what hasn't changed at all is just the sheer joy of just moving over rock or plastic or whatever, just moving up. And, you know, negotiating life vertically has just always been something I've loved to do. It doesn't really even matter how difficult it is. It's always going to be sort of difficult. I was just two days ago and had a climb a cliffs of it, which has got pretty, you know, 50 foot walls. And God, I was having a fight like crazy to make it to the top of some of these. I'm not in shape because I haven't been climbing because of the pandemic, you know, not enough to do, get anything but sore, you know, and, and I always liked that part of it too, fighting something about, you know, getting on something and, you know, your fingers are starting to butter off. Can I breathe through this? Can I find a rest hole? Can I get, you know, can I, can I make this? That's always, that's always been no matter what the level is, because I'm old now and I can't do, I can't crank like I used to. If I wanted to crank like I used to, I'd have to put, I'd have to spend my whole life doing that. I'm not willing to do that any longer, right? It still gives me, to try to answer your question directly, your question directly, it still gives me, I still get a charge out of going in there and just trying to get up stuff. And that's, that's been, it's been the same since, <laughs> since I started. Can we climb this thing or not? That's always been a great question to try to answer. I've had one hell of a life trying to answer it, too.
All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to John for sitting down on a creaky chair. Fuck you, creaky chair. I didn't know the creaky chair would be so loud until after I started editing. Sorry about a creaky chair. Anyway, once again, check out Icarus Syndrome, D'Angelo Publications. Great book. I think you'll dig it. All right, it's time to get out there and find your own existential horsepower, whatever that might be. Can you climb this thing? I bet you can. But of course, don't forget to check your knots. entails placing a hand inside the crack, then expanding the hand. Because the fist can be expanded very little, it's important to work for the best jam. Finding that place where the fist fits tight to begin with, then expanding it to make the jam solid. Remember, it's easy to let the fist rotate in the crack, which can result in some very painful abrasions. So, Doc, what are we looking at here? Well, Logger, man, we got a call about an hour ago in the meat wagon. By the time we got there, there wasn't much we could do. This chump was booking it up a fist crack, thrashing like a mackerel out of water. By the time we got there, his hands were gone. Gone? Gone! Best to watch how you set those jams.